Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm really excited to be here for this episode with Michael Robinson, who does developer relations over Astronomer. How's it going, Michael? Oh, uh, great. Thanks. How are you? Doing pretty well. I'm excited for our conversation here. I always like to start with all of my guests with origin stories. I find them really fascinating and sort of informative about how people approach their work. I'd love to hear from you how you first got started in CS and programming. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's an honor to be here. It's really nice to meet you. I'm excited to speak with you today about how I got into IT. In thinking about my particular origin story, pretty familiar probably for a lot of people in that I really did the move during COVID and it was the lockdown that was my opportunity to finally do the self-learning and retraining that I'd been kind of pondering for a while. So when I think of COVID, it's really a mixed thing for myself and my family, because as hard as it was, and personally, and for so many people, I couldn't have done it without the lockdown. There's no way. And the way I got started was in trying to build my own website for a thesis editing business. So one thing that I've done over the years as faculty member in English departments and writing departments and other departments is edit. And one thing that I've edited is theses and dissertations. And I thought, well, I need more of a web presence and I'm going to teach myself how to do it. I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. And I, not knowing anything, I probably did it in like 1990 kind of way with FTP and raw HTML. And that was it. And, you know, bought a domain and I think I had it stood up for a couple of weeks. But that was the sort of spur that I needed. That was the first toe in the water that affirmed for me that I could do it because I'm the kind of person who just who needs to sort of try something and test it out before I make the leap. And then once I'd done other things like that, like earned some certificates on Coursera, did the uh, Python for Everybody course with Dr. Chuck Severance at University of Michigan. Once I'd done stuff like that, I thought, okay, well, that test number two. Now I feel like I can invest in a boot camp. So I went that route and did a part-time boot camp and uh, graduated right in time for the fall semester to start. So it was right around August of 21, I believe. So that's how I really made the transition. But I've always been kind of tech, sort of curious, someone who rather than like ship the laptop to Lenovo, I would do everything I could to avoid that, right? Like search the forums, open up the back, so little things like that. And the first exposure probably that I had to computing was in elementary school, this little parochial school in 
Monroe, Louisiana, and some amazing person, some incredibly generous benefactor donated an entire Mac lab to this school. It was, I don't know how many two E's there were, but it was a room. With the big floppies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And on those floppies, we had one program, I believe it was Tuts Typer. And and that was the first program that I ever used, I think. Wow. You kind of alluded to this a little bit, but up until about two years ago, your career was in academia, right? Like you were a teacher, you have a PhD, from what I could tell. You were mm-hmm. pretty deep in literature and writing as a pursuit, which I think most people would think of as pretty far removed from being a programmer. Like why make that leap? Like you kind of talked about the immediate need of putting together a website, but doing a major career transition is obviously quite a bit bigger than, you know, learning how to put together a website. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I don't know that I've ever formulated an answer to this. So I'm not sure what I'm going to say, actually. But I think that process of just trying something for fun awakened something, like an interest that I didn't even know I really had. And it turns out, I think, that I'm you know much better suited to engineering and coding than I was to English. And so it's no surprise that I made the switch, you know, in hindsight, but hindsight is 2020. And until then, I yeah, I was really deep in English and these related fields where I was doing research and teaching and some administration. And a large part of it was also the fact that, to me, tech was a living, thriving field with opportunity. And English was a dead or nearly dead field without opportunity. And there's a personal story there that's long. And and I had moved because my wife had gotten this amazing job. We were both in higher ed and she'd gotten this amazing job. And I decided that, you know, I'd make the move with her. And that was a factor too. It's like, well, okay. That was a tough moment professionally for me to try to find work in higher ed in New England after living in California for a long time. So it was a whole like set of factors that, you know, went into the decision. But at the end of the day, I think the reason it suited me was because, you know, for reasons I wasn't even aware of at the time, I think it was a good fit. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Like most of the work that we do is with undergrad students, right? So people who are, let's say between the ages of 17 and 22, you know, going to university for the first time, pursuing computer science as their first career. And I know a number of people personally who have, you know, gone to boot camps or made that career switch. Like one of the things I'm really curious about with your particular journey there is you were in teaching, like you were in academia, you were working for universities, and then you went off and did all of this self-taught and eventually boot camp style learning, which is pretty different than a typical curriculum in a school. You know, what was sort of your reaction to the the style of educational, like, material and learning opportunities that were suddenly at your disposal there? Yeah, 
let me tell you, that was an education just in itself because I was, you know, I was trained and I was really accustomed to a traditional learning model where the only knowledge you could really trust, I was led to believe, was in these established systems and institutions, right? And one thing that I'm really glad that I learned from this experience is that there's so much knowledge, there's so many amazing resources that are outside of those established streams, right? And that was great because I think one thing that I at least learned in doing English for so long is a kind of elitism about all of that. It's kind of baked in and, you know, no surprise there, right? Lots of reason that's the case, but that was certainly the case for me. And so I have a profound respect for people who make their domain knowledge public. And, you know, people like Dr. Chuck, actually, really grateful to people who put their stuff up on the web, who put their stuff up on Coursera. But in the departments where I worked and where I was trained, you know, unthinkable. Why would you do that? Right. You know, there's a kind of career suicide in that, right? So, yeah, absolutely. It's one of those really kind of unique, organic parts of the tech world, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because of how it has evolved and how short a time period it's actually been around, there's almost like a necessity for self documentation and education that you know, in the field of English literature, which has been around for many, many hundreds of years, like it evolved so differently and so gradually that perhaps it didn't have the same need, right? Like there's historical reasons why you have classroom education in that field. But for computer science, it's almost the opposite. Like computer science professors often struggle to keep up with the latest technologies and trends and methodologies there. And so there's like a really bizarre, like, I don't know. It's quite unique. I've never seen anything else like it in terms of other things you can learn about in general. Like, one of the things I'd be really curious to hear from you about is like, okay, you know, this kind of opened your eyes, right? This was totally different than your experience. You know, you pretty quickly made that transition to DevRel, which for a lot of people, their second career after being an engineer, right? Like they write code and then they're like, oh, I really want to help and teach community members. But as far as I can tell, you jumped right into that. Was that a result of, you know, mixing those two kind of interests and backgrounds? Like why DevRel as sort of a first exposure? Yeah, I was just talking about this with Ross Turk, who's the senior director of community at Astronomer. And he was telling me exactly the same thing that in his experience over, you know, a decade plus people in DevRel have come out of software engineering roles. And I, being sort of brand new, I wasn't aware of that barrier, really. And I was applying like a mad person, right? I was doing at least 10 applications a day. And I was applying for anything and everything. And when I saw this field... And I can tell you how I learned about it, but when I saw the field and the kinds of job postings that were available, 
I thought I could make a really plausible argument based on my experience in the classroom, working with diverse audiences, writing, doing research, that this mix of skills would make for a good DevRel person, even though I didn't have the long experience in engineering that others have. And the way that I learned about it was purely by luck. There was an event, an alumni event that Coding Temple, my boot camp, was putting on where the guest speaker was a DevRel person. And that was, I mean, I had never heard of it. It wasn't mentioned to me by my excellent job coach at Coding Temple, Marlene Tang. And, you know, and I hope others will consider it, others who have an education background. Because I, you know, I think it's a good fit for me. I completely agree. I actually have a history degree and I had done some software engineering work, but basically went directly into DevRel because I had initially wanted to become a high school history teacher. And instead Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, you know, there's this thing out there that marries these two different worlds I'm interested in. It was very serendipitous uh, for me as well. I'm curious, like, okay, so you went through this boot camp, and boot camps get a lot of flack right? Coming from the traditional education background, it sounds like you mostly just had a positive experience and it was a totally different novel thing. You know, what are some of the things that you felt like boot camps did particularly well? And I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that, you know, perhaps traditional classroom environments and curriculum do better? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I can't compare the traditional classroom for CS, obviously, to the boot camp. But in now having some experience under my belt, I can say that the boot camp was a good preparation in terms of the intensity. They just throw you in. You don't have a lot of background information. That foundational information you don't have, there isn't time to provide it to you. And you are expected to make up whatever gaps through self-learning. And I think that's a great model for the day-to-day work of an engineer. I mean, how often in building a project do you have to do that anyway? In learning to use a new tool or debugging something that isn't working, that's the process. And so there's not a lot of that context. And who knows, I probably have to do a lot more remedial work day-to-day than others, that's possible. But to just get a foot in the door, I feel like the sort of throw them in the deep end and sink or swim. It worked for me, at least. And I'll be, you know, the first to admit that I'm very fortunate. I had a very supportive spouse. You know, my wife has been incredibly supportive of that. So, I mean, could I have done it otherwise? I don't know. I doubt it. But having another income in the household was crucial for me to be able to devote all the time that I needed in order to make the shift. And I was in a cohort with people who were working nine to five and starting the boot camp at 5 p.m. and doing their projects late into the night, the entire weekend. And, you know, my hats off to those people. And they had a much harder road. Yeah, I really resonate with what you're saying. And I think it's the further you get into life and the more responsibilities you have for yourself and others, right? The harder those transitions become. 
And I think that's often overlooked when people talk about boot camps and career switching is the actual level of difficulty that's built into that kind of process for probably the majority of folks out there. So to get back to developer relations, I understand why it made sense. I think it's a really like logical kind of like leap to be like, ah, yes, like I have these two things I can do. I'm curious, like how a lot of the training that you described around how to teach and how to build curriculum have actually factored into, you know, the developer relations work you're doing at Astronomer. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that I'm unaware of, the way that I interact with audiences and engineers is influenced by that experience. There's very little work that I do day to day, however, that is, you know, a straight parallel to the kinds of assignments and other kinds of materials and tasks that I would create for students. It's a much more abstract, just kind of way of thinking and way of being that has carried over. And I think some of the straighter, more direct parallels are in areas where I've got to write documentation and explain complicated concepts in a logical, easy to understand form for as broad an audience as possible to kind of imagine where my intended audience is in relation to the knowledge I'm trying to give them and what assumptions I can make and what assumptions I can't make. All of those things are kind of part and parcel of doing the work of teaching and communicating to diverse audiences. And and so the experience that I had teaching, doing other kinds of work at places where the, for example, the international student population was as high as 30%, or I was teaching in another country. All of these experiences have been crucial. But I think there's also just a kind of soft skill set that one gets in working with so many different kinds of people and trying to communicate with them and collaborate with them. I think that's really been helpful too. The research process, you know, the kinds of work that one has to do in making the most use of databases and the web to do your research in any kind of field, that carries over, right? The filters that you develop in terms of being able to identify a valid source from maybe a source you should be skeptical of, all of that stuff, that's been really helpful. But I think astronomer has probably benefited most directly from my writing skills, if I had to say. And I'm really grateful that I was an English person for that reason. And I had to kind of change registers and unlearn some habits because ironically, English departments produce really bad writers. I think it's not what you would expect. What do you mean by that? Because, you know, the criticism, I shouldn't generalize. The fields that I studied were characterized by a lot of paradoxical, convoluted, language. And the goal was to be esoteric, I think, on some level, to be as technical and precise as possible to the point where being clear and straightforward was sort of secondary, if a consideration at all. 
And you can be cynical about that. And I don't want to be cynical about that. It's just very technical, very different. And I had to unlearn some habits. And I'm grateful for some other experiences I had just over the years working in a communication school, for example, where I was working with psychologists and PR professionals and doing completely different kinds of writing. I think that was more directly relevant. So I'm grateful for those experiences as well. But yeah, I would say the writing skills in particular have been been really key. It's very counterintuitive to me that having been in departments where like technical specific writing would not carry over well to actual technical subjects, right? Like like I'm trying to like wrap my head around that a little bit because when I think about writing about technical, you know, like software concepts, there is a lot of specificity you have to get to communicate well. Perhaps you also need conciseness and clarity, but like, you know, you often have to get in some really deep, difficult to understand technical subjects to really get your point across. Yeah, it's very true. And and I have succeeded and failed at navigating that balance. And I feel like that need to be very accurate and meet the needs, an audience that needs specificity is kind of intention with also needing to bring less skilled people to the table as well, uh, make comparisons, draw parallels. That kind of takes you out of the specific stuff. So, so it's a balance that I had to continuing to kind of navigate in writing blog posts, for example, about new features. It's kind of a funnel in a way. I start in a sort of general mode and then kind of drill down. And so I'm doing kind of both things in the same piece sometimes. But English in particular is its own kind of animal. It's a very different kind of technical field. And there are subfields that are not as technical. There are subfields that are less self-conscious. Like I was reading a lot of stuff that was about language, and that is necessarily self-conscious. And so the mode of expression was kind of turned on itself. And the habits that you develop and the paradoxes that you're inclined to indulge in, in that kind of thing, that's kind of what I'm focused on. But like the stuff that's interdisciplinary with your field, like history, can be quite different, right? So there's a diversity there in English, and I don't want to sell it short. But at the end of the day, I think it wasn't for me, honestly. And I'm glad that I found this field. Yeah. I do think that many people who are going through computer science programs or even are in the industry perhaps have similar feelings to you about the focus on like esoteric, like really sort of self-referential subjects rather than more of the creative process of it. I think I kind of hear where you're coming from with English and linguistics and literature a lot of those things are also quite evident in computer science programs when you really like get into it. And in many ways, like that's, I think, part of what boot camps really succeed at is like the hands-on creative component of it. And a lot of computer science programs don't quite get that far, you know, teaching that. So, you know, 
I've read a couple of the posts that you've written and, you know, they are quite easy to understand. I'm curious, like, when you think about developers as a general group of people, right? Like, is there some base level technical writing or, or English curriculum that that you think, you know, the average computer science student would benefit from? Oh, that's a great question. I think, you know, in general, um, I'm a big proponent, I'm a big fan of having as large a context as possible, no matter what field you're in. And so, you know, the more learning about other things, you know, the absolutely the better. And and specifically in regard to language and and writing and that stuff, yeah, trying to think of some folks, someone like Barbara Euland, she wrote a book called If You Want to Write, a book about art, independence, and spirit. I would go to one of these kind of really well-regarded introductions to good writing. And this is one that I know of, If You Want to Write by Barbara Euland. There are others. And I think that also something that's really helpful is just to make reading part of your regular routine. Because, you know, I think it's true what many, many people have said, which is the way to to write better is to read a lot and read good writing. And that's certainly, as I've said, that's certainly the case for me. I mean, it's also true that if you read bad writing, you write poorly or, you know, garbage in, garbage out. It's just like computing. But yeah, that's what I would say too. Like, I think the key is like with anything else, something that's going to spark that interest in reading or writing and make it part of one's daily life is really so important at the end of the day, because it's the practice, right? Ultimately, it's the practice that you make out of it that you're going to learn from. That's certainly been the case for me in making the shift to tech. I've learned that my learning style is really about doing and just jumping in and trying something. And I think a lot of people are that way. And so the way to become better at writing and expressing yourself, I think if you're that kind of learner might be just to make it part of your daily life. Yeah, I love that. So as you're writing all of this content, right, I noticed that some of it is pretty technical. Some of it is almost more like comms, you know, oriented where it's like, hey, like, here's this new thing that's coming your way. What are some of the best practices you try to think about when you're creating, you know, a new piece of, let's call it like developer relations content, right? Like, what makes a good technical deep dive? Yeah, great question. I think one thing I try to consider is the intended audience and the assumptions that I can and can't make. I've got to try to create interest in a broad audience, but I can't alienate the engineers who are going to be most likely to use the feature or the package or whatever. So that's something that I keep in mind. I also try to keep the expectations really clear the focus pretty narrow 
and include lots of links. So there's the sort of jagged binding surface to use Ross Turks. I borrowed that from him expression. What does that mean? So a lot of links, for example, to more information about things that you mention is a way of getting people more engaged in your content. And if they see it as a resource that they can come back to for related information, then maybe they'll return to it again. Uh, Maybe they'll read all the way through to the end. Organization is really key. Keeping things pretty short and moving in terms of the sections. I try to be a little bit more journalistic and a little bit just briefer in general than I might otherwise be inclined to be. If the choice is between absolute precision of language and something that is almost as good but more succinct, then I'm going to go the latter. What does the like editorial and review process look like at a place like Astronomer? Well, on the open source side, I am fortunate to have a little bit more latitude and freedom. There are fewer gatekeepers in place. There's less of that kind of oversight and legal that you might have in other contexts. And so what we really stress is accuracy in terms of the technical content in description. And so, you know, there are many reasons I'm really happy on the open source side of the house. One of them that, you know, you might not expect is just this relative freedom that you have in in writing. But one thing that I'm really careful about is inviting as many people as I can to give feedback on the technical content. Um, you know, and that's partly because I'm I might be a little bit more confident than some of the people on my team as a writer, but I'm less confident than most people in terms of the tech. So, you know, you're talking about open source, and I think in this case, you're probably talking about open lineage primarily. So did open source come up at all in your bootcamp as like an actual, like aside from utilizing open source technologies, did open source as like a discipline or a stylistic like type of building software come up at all? Well, it was very practical when it did. And like you are saying, it was from day one, it was part of the the process of creating projects. We took an open source approach and we used Git and GitHub. That was from day one. But, you know, I think one thing that, yeah, that in my experience distinguished the bootcamp from CS would have been the history of open source, the philosophy of open source, the politics of open source, all of that stuff. No, we we didn't get into it all. I don't think most computer science curriculums do either, to be totally honest. I'm curious, like what surprised you now that you are deep in that world? Yeah, one thing that was totally new to me was this idea that the commercial and the sort of more or less aggressively non-commercial approaches to software development could coexist in the same organization and be in tension. And that tension can be productive or it can be obstructive, but it's sort of there. It's sort of it's sort of interesting. I really like the fact that there's all of this to learn about and experience 
in being on the open source side as opposed to the product side. Because you get a sort of bird's eye view in a way of the company that I feel like the folks on the product side might not get. And you get to think about all of these interesting ethical, political stakes, strategic kinds of decisions get to interact with all sorts of uh, parts of the organization. Um, so I feel really fortunate just for that. And then there's just the fact that as a kind of lefty person, I get to be on the open source side. It sort of appeals to me just, you know, for that reason as well. Yeah. I think it appeals to a lot of people and it's really quite fascinating because it is this odd combination of almost like, you know, without getting too deep into the politics of it, it's like this combination of this like very like communal, like sort of like socialistic way of building software together. But Mm -hmm. it is like completely interconnected with like this, you know, the capitalism of building startups and creating businesses. And, you know, the two concepts really kind of do coexist. And as far as I can tell, in most situations, like benefit one another, right? You end up in these like really kind of unique, mutually beneficial situations where you can have a thriving business and a thriving open source community that, you know, have related but but slightly different goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was definitely eye-opening. And it made me want to learn more. And it has made me someone who, when I have the opportunity, I, I use other open source products and contribute. So it's fun. It doesn't even feel like work, honestly. That's a good place to be. So we only have a couple of minutes left here. You know, one of the things I always kind of like to end on is I like to hear from people about other, you know, technical experts and creators that you look up to. I know you mentioned Dr. Chuck and that his content was incredibly beneficial to you. Are there any other folks that you've seen out there just creating really kind of like exceptional work teaching developers? Yeah. And there's a guy at Astronomer who is fantastic at this kind of thing. And he makes it interesting and fun to learn how to use Airflow. So, you know, that's an achievement, right? And his name's Mark Lamberti. He's someone I look up to. We've got so many people who are so much better than I am at speaking and presenting and writing. And so it's humbling to work with folks who are as accomplished at those things as they are. I really look up to, you know, the pioneers, though, as well, like Guido Van Rossum. I just love the idea of creating a language and your whole thing is to make it as legible and as easy to understand as possible. That really resonates with me. Yeah. It's a cool pursuit. I'm always impressed by people who are able to do that effectively. The final question I like to ask people is just, I find it to be kind of a fun, you know, introspective one, but who, you know, aspirationally would you want to take to lunch? Like someone that is in the tech field, maybe in DevRel, that, you know, you just want to like grab and pick their brain for two hours. You mentioned Guido. I mean, he would be a fascinating person to sit down with, but who, you know, would you love to just like spend some time with? Yeah, that would probably be the one actually. 
just yeah, because of all the things that he's done and the places that he's worked, the impact that he's had. I love the idea of language creation, language creators. I might invite him to coffee instead, just because lunch is like a long commitment and it might get awkward. (laughs) You never know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I really enjoyed our conversation. If people want to find your work or your online presence, where should they look? Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it too. It was great to meet you. It's really exciting, really an honor to get this opportunity. You can find me at LinkedIn, Michael E. Robinson, and my handle on GitHub is Morobi-Hub, H-U-B. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Folks who are listening, if you enjoyed it, definitely keep an eye out for more episodes and, you know, like and subscribe if you want to follow along. But happy hacking, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.